Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. America, we have a problem. I'm not sure when I first became aware of the problem, but I suspect I've known it for a long time. Now, you've probably heard this before. They say that the best way to boil a frog is to put a frog in cold water and then slowly turn up the heat and then the frog will adjust to the temperature all along the way until the frog is like fully cooked. And I, I don't know about you, I've always heard that and I've always tried to imagine a scenario where I wanted to boil a frog. I was like, where, why would this ever be necessary? Why are we boiling frogs? I don't understand, but that's how the story goes. Let's just kind of go with it. I think the temperature in in the Western world has been slowly and steadily increasing for a long time. The warning signs have been there and you and I feel it. We We feel it when we're standing in line at the grocery store we feel it when we're checking our media feed. We feel it when when our photo doesn't get enough likes. Um, we feel it when we first get out of bed in the morning. There's just something in the air, and it and it's changing us. I'm not talking about climate change. That's probably another conversation for another day. I'm talking about a change in something that's more like our moral or psychological or maybe even our spiritual climate. Things have shifted in the last few decades inside of us, and I'm not sure we've really noticed. Or if we've noticed, we have felt somewhat powerless to even stop it. Something has shifted, and it's a bit hard to put a label on exactly what it is, but let me give you some of the symptoms of that shift. Anxiety and depression in this country are way up. The World Health Organization did a study on it a few years back, and they found some really interesting stuff. The assumption was that anxiety is correlated to poverty. You're more anxious when you don't have money. But that's only a part of the story. What they discovered actually was that anxiety was highest in the poorest areas of wealthy countries. Wealthy countries like America actually have a higher rate of anxiety than a poor country like Uganda. It's pretty crazy, right? In America, it's estimated that 40 million adults, or one out of every five people in the U.S. have some sort of anxiety, disorder, or depression. That's really high. That means a lot of people in this room are anxious most of the time or are depressed. It's not just adults, of course. Anxiety in teenagers has skyrocketed. There's been a dramatic uptick in, that, in, in anxiety and depression in teenagers since about 2012. What happened in 2012, you ask? Well, smartphone saturation happened. The iPhone first came out in 2007, and 2012 was the first year that over 50% of the population had a smartphone. And from that time forward, social media explodes, there's Instagram, extreme image management, lack of sleep, all of that stuff. And the teenagers growing up in that world are like lab rats for an experiment of just how will the malleable teenage mind respond to this constant stimuli, to the constant opportunity for approval from strangers. And early results on that, of course, are not great. And what's interesting to me is to look at what the people who created this tech-obsessed world are saying about it. Think about uh, Sean Parker. I, I, I heard something he said maybe two years ago. Sean Parker was the original president of Facebook. If you've seen the movie The Social Network, uh, it's Justin Timberlake. It's the guy that he plays in that movie. Uh, listen to what he said about Facebook back in 2017. 
It literally changes your relationship with society, with each other. It probably interferes with productivity in weird ways. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to, we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content, and that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with, because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. So if you're wondering where your sense of focus and attention, and maybe even where a lot of your time has gone in your life, look no further than this. It's not that you're ADHD or anything that you need Adderall. Um, here's the deal. There are geniuses with PhDs from MIT, and there's, there's whole rooms full of them, and they are working very hard to suck you in. And no offense to anyone in this room, but the reality is all those people are smarter than you. This is why executives at big tech companies in Silicon Valley are spending big money to send their own children to private schools that have no screens at them at all. This is why with all the time-saving devices in the world, like dishwashers or microwaves, smartphones, all that, we still feel, and, and you've probably found yourself saying at some point, you, we still feel like, man, there just aren't enough hours in the day. This is why our attention span is so poor. There was a study done by Microsoft in 2015, and this is what they discovered. Did you know that b before the digital revolution in like the year 2000, the average attention span of, of a person in our culture was 12 seconds? But since the digital revolution, where everyone's got smartphones in their pockets and all that kind of stuff, the attention span now is down to um, 8 seconds. To put that into perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So we are literally losing out to goldfish on our attention span. Like something is really going weird here. And the solution to our problem is not to somehow magically generate more time. If you have 50 hours in a day, you'd fill them up with distractions. You know that. You know, all of us would do it. You'd like to think, oh man, if I had more hours in the day, I would learn to play piano, or I'd, I'd, I'd learn a foreign language, or I'd read that book I've always wanted to read. No, you won't. You'll just fill it up more time with more dopamine-producing distractions. And I believe this isn't just a psychological problem, it's a spiritual problem. Our lack of attentiveness is killing our souls. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, tells this story. The story goes like this. It's the height of British colonialism. An English traveler lands in Africa intent on a rapid journey into the jungle. He charters some local porters to carry his supplies. After an exhausting day of travel, all on foot, and a fitful night's sleep, he gets up to continue the journey, but the porters refused. Exasperated, he begins to cajole, bribe, plead, but nothing works. They will not move an inch. Naturally, he asks why. Answer? They are waiting for their souls to catch up with their bodies. This, this gets at it for me. We struggle in our culture to make space for our souls to catch up with our bodies. We run, we press, we hurry, we move about, we eat up all our margins. We can't stand in a checkout line without checking our feet. We can't sit on the toilet without crushing all the candy. There's something in the air. Maybe it's the Wi-Fi signal and it's taking a toll on our soul. Now, there is a solution to this. 
Because for all the technological advances, this is actually an ancient problem. This is a human nature problem. Our desire to overachieve, our unhealthy sense of pride, our desire to prove something to our fathers or coworkers or to our ex. Yeah, we have some modern twist to all this, but really, this is an ancient problem. So let me take you to the scriptures. And it may be a surprise to you because we tend not to think of God in these terms. But the truth is, God was not surprised by the invention of the internet. He designed our bodies to work in certain ways. And he can also foresee the ways we could use and abuse them. So just like if a light is on the dashboard of your car, you'd go to the owner's manual. We go back to the scriptures when things get misaligned in us and see what is wrong and see what the solution is. Now, this is a really important topic in this series. We launched into this series called Better a few weeks ago, and we were looking at six habits for change. And the easiest thing for us as Americans is to see all of it as a self-improvement plan and to view it as a list of things to do. Do better. Be better. Do more. Accomplish more. Um, Get after it. And listen, I I am that guy. I'm about it. If you want to go to Enneagram with me, I'm a three. We live for this stuff. Achievement. Winning. And, I'm, and I've heard that if you could give an Enneagram a number to a country, America would be a three. So I get it. So what I want to walk through with you is stuff I'm learning in my own life and what the Lord is teaching me about who I am and who we are as humans. Let's take this thing way back to the Ten Commandments. You may not know much about the Bible, but you've probably heard the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know those. But let me give you some context. God originally delivers these Ten Commandments to the Israelites as they left Egypt. The Israelite people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And if there's any good side, I suppose, to being enslaved like that, is that you don't have to do much thinking for yourself. You are fed. You know what your job is. But as soon as they leave Egypt, quite simply, the Israelites don't know how to be human. They don't know what it means to be in a relationship with their Creator. And here's where their situation is a little bit like ours. The Israelites don't really know what it's like to think of themselves as having any value outside of their job. The Israelites made the pyramids. They were bricklayers for generations. Your value to the Egyptians was in how many bricks you produce. Are we really that different? I don't think so. We just have different bricks now. So these ragtag band of desert wanderers who are used to being slaves are given Ten Commandments by God. A starter kit for morality and ethics for sure. But more than that, it's a different way to be in relationship with their Heavenly Father. Now, the commandments start with some stuff about making God the priority. Don't have idols before God. Honor God first and foremost. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. As humans, it starts with us knowing our Creator and prioritizing our relationship with Him. Now, the Ten Commandments in Commandments 6 through 10, it's going to end with stuff about our relationship with each other. Don't kill, don't cheat, don't covet, all that stuff. Those are the ones that people mostly remember. But right there in the middle of the commandments, it says this. Commandment number four. Listen to it. This is from Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, that's the commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy means set apart or separate. God calls his people to take time out every week to rest and restore their souls. And keeping that day holy means to guard it carefully and don't let everything to encroach upon it. Don't let everything else crowd it out. Check out your calendar every week for this day of rest. Now, the Israelites would be shocked by this. A full day to not do anything but to rest? When you are a slave in Egypt for 400 years, you don't get a day off. You just keep working. And in some ways, when you're a nomad in the ancient world, if you don't work, you don't eat. So telling someone to take a day off isn't like us being told that. If I say to you, take a day off, 
You're not going to starve. You have refrigeration. You have a bank account. But the Israelites are like big, biggie smalls because they had to get their grind on. They had to keep after it. So along comes God and he says, take a break. Stop. Rest. Now you and I probably have all sorts of excuses why we don't need to take a rest. Why if we work through all of our margins, we will still be okay. But they had excuses too. Knowing this, God gives them an explanation of the rules. Notice this here, because in the Ten Commandments, God tells them, thou shall not kill, and does not feel the need to elaborate on that. Don't kill people. It's pretty clear cut, right? But with the Sabbath, we get a lot of explanation. Listen to what he says. Verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So, this looks like a six-day work week. He's basically saying, work hard for six days, and then on that seventh day, you take a break. And not just you, but everybody. Your animals don't work. People who live with you don't work. Uh, it says, uh, sojourners at the gates. Those are people who are not Israelites that are living among them. Like, nobody works. Because what we would do, or what people would do, is try to get around it. Oh, I'm supposed to take a day off. Well, I'll have my servants still work on that day, so we can still be productive. And God says, no, everybody needs to stop and and take take a break um so god you know god is specific on that no work all of you one full day but why that's the question i mean you read thou shall not kill and you don't ask why it's obvious killing other people is bad for them and it's not great for you either it won't solve things for you but when god says take a day off why we need some explanation of that and god anticipates that and gives them the explanation why should we take off take a day off listen to verse 11 listen to what he says for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God points them to the creation of the universe and says, hey, the pattern here is not an accident. God creates the earth in six days, and then even God takes the day off at the end and rests from the work. So get this. You, you've heard of something being holy. Um, there's a lot of, especially if you grew up, maybe if you had a Catholic upbringing, you're, you're used to things like holy water or holy sanctuary or maybe a holy person, um, holy set apart, right? And so here's this thing that's set apart. Uh, but the very first thing God sets apart as holy isn't a thing at all. It's actually time, that seventh day. God says, take that day and set it apart for rest and worship. The pattern laid out for us in Genesis is not just an explanation of what happened, but it's meant to be a template for us to follow. There's something in the way we were created that we respond to that kind of rhythm. We can go hard, but we need to take a break. This is why we sleep at night, because our body needs a break to refresh and recharge. This is why we eat, because we need fuel. This is why we observe the Sabbath, why we take a day off, because we need to create space for our souls to catch up with our bodies. Now, I've read that before, and like many of you are probably doing, I've sort of thought, like, hmm, Sabbath, that's a good idea. I should get more downtime. I should take a, a full day off. Let me look at my calendar. When can I do that? Oh, I could take a Sabbath maybe from on Friday from 3 to 4 p.m. I'll have to move some things around, but I think I can make it work. Am I the only one who does that? No, getting, getting this kind of break in our schedule is hard. But it's even harder when we don't really recognize the value of doing it. 
That's true of so many things in life. If you feel stuck in some area of your life, pick one. Career, faith, relationships, finances, whatever. You might want to ask yourself, how bad do you really want it? Because if you only kind of want something, you probably won't be willing to put up with the discipline that it takes to get it. So if we hear or we read about the idea of Sabbath or we hear about how our lack of attention and our usage of time and our anxiety is killing us and we hear about all the stuff and we only kind of want to take a real break, then we won't really pursue it. We'll just float along with one busy thing after another. One distraction after another until we wind up in a doctor's office someday and the doctor tells us to slow down soon or we'll die. And even then we probably won't slow down. It's amazing really when you think about the Ten Commandments. Keep God first. Don't make idols. Don't kill or steal. If we break those commandments, we'll feel bad about it. We might even get put in jail because of it. But when we break the Sabbath, when we refuse to take a day off, when we ignore what God tells us about how we are made, we often don't even feel bad about it. We actually brag about it. We're like, man, I worked 12 days in a row last month. We brag about it because it makes us seem busy and important. Hey, I've got a lot going on. Because somehow in this culture, we've decided that if you don't have a lot going on, something must be wrong with you. Now, to be honest, when I first read about the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, I didn't really get it. It sounds fine, I guess, but kind of impractical. Who has time to really take all that downtime every week? And really, when God says you should do this because this is the order of creation, six days of work followed by rest, I get that sort of intellectually, but it doesn't mean anything to me emotionally, I guess. But then I looked over at Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments actually show up in two places, in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy. It's repeated. But when you get to commandment number 4, uh, there's, a, there's a difference in, in how it's laid out. And I want to read it to you uh, from, in, from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Listen to the way the Sabbath commandment. Listen, to the, listen for the difference there, starting verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Okay, pretty much the same so far, but listen to the reason. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You shall remember your, your history, that you were a slave. Well, the Israelites used to be slaves. God gives them these rules as people who have newly found freedom. They get these rules while they're wandering in the desert for 40 years before they enter the promised land. And God is trying to tell them something else about the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't just downtime that fits with the way your body was designed and aligns with the creation story. The Sabbath is a reminder that you're not a slave, that you don't have to grind out work every day of your life just to make it. You see, Egypt was a wealthy empire, so wealthy that they used other people to make their stuff. They didn't have to do the hard work of building their great monuments like the pyramids. They had slaves to do that. And that's where it's so similar to our situation. America is a wealthy empire. We are so wealthy, in fact, we don't have to do our own dirty work. We can bring in foreigners and immigrants to do jobs that we don't want to do. We can get our clothing from factories with horrible living conditions where people are paid very little money. As long as those factories are super far away from us, we don't have to notice what's going on there. So how do we solve that? I mean, I I see a, a documentary like The High Cost of Low Prices, and I'm moved. I read about horrible working conditions in certain parts of the world, and and what am I supposed to do? I mean, my shirts have labels like Made in Sri Lanka on them as well. And this is where Sabbath can help. 
Walter Brueggemann says, Sabbath is an act of resistance. It's a day when we say enough of the overachieving consumerist trap. Enough of the I have bigger, better, more. Enough of living as if I am what I do and I am what I consume. In some ways, you could say Sabbath is kind of sticking it to the man. But Sabbath is not designed by God to be a burden to us. It's not supposed to be this obligation that sits heavy on us and makes us sour-faced. It's intended to be a joyful thing. It's intended to be a, uh, to, to, to be a built-in break to our weekly rhythm. Do we need a break? Yeah, of course. The people who ignore taking a break over time start to fall apart. But simply take a break. Put, put, let me put it this way. Take a break or you will break. Ignore the Sabbath principle in your own life, and eventually you will talk to a doctor who will tell you that your stress is killing you and your blood pressure is too high. Now, as we consider the Sabbath principle, there are two extremes we typically take. Most of us ignore it altogether. We say things like, I only need six hours of sleep a night, and we load up on productivity hacks, and we try to get every advantage we can to maximize our time and seize the day, every, 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 seize every day. This is our tendency in this country. We ignore the God-designed rhythm of the world, and we eventually pay for it. The other extreme with the Sabbath is to overdo it. When Jesus walked the earth in the first century AD, this was far more common. The Ten Commandments spell out the Sabbath, right? They give some instructions on it and they give some reasoning behind it. You get a why behind the what. Over time, the Jewish teachers added many more layers to that law. Since you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, they said you can't walk more than a quarter of a mile because that's work. You have to light your candles before the Sabbath day because lighting the candle would be work. And Jesus bumps into all this kind of stuff in his teaching. He's walking around teaching people and healing people, and sometimes he would heal people of their diseases on the Sabbath day. And the Jewish leaders would get angry. Why are you doing this on the Sabbath day? And if you step back from a distance like we do now, it sure looks like they're missing the forest for the trees. I mean, yeah, Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath day. Like, big deal. I, I doubt the guy you know, who was healed was like, oh, don't do that to me on a Sabbath day. Like, it's weird. So Jesus bumps into that, and he ends up teaching on this. And listen to what he says, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus says, God gave this for you. This isn't something you're supposed to serve in this totally restrictive, like life-sucking way. This is a gift from God that is supposed to help you. So look, I'm convinced the vast majority of us need to take some time in our schedules to let our souls catch up with our bodies. And I'm guessing as I've been talking to you about this, you've thought, yeah, that's probably right, but I just don't see how. And I often believe when I teach up here that if people are clear on the why of something and they have a vision for their lives, they will figure out the how of it. But let me give you some quick ideas around the how and then we're done. Number one, make a plan. You will not Sabbath by accident. Mark out some time in your week. You could try the Jewish schedule of Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. Maybe try it through these weeks of Lent. Mark out some time and turn off your phone. Don't check your emails. Don't do your work. Figure out how to do your unpaid labor, like washing your clothes and running errands on other times of the week so that you aren't doing them during this time. 
Secondly, do something. Don't just stop doing something. So don't just not work. You're going to fill up your time with something. Do the things that restore your soul. A walk in the woods. A great meal with friends. Even if you have to cook it and that feels like work, learn to enjoy it. See a concert. Read that book you've always been saying you don't have time to read. And then third, take time to worship God. For many Christians, they take Sundays as their form of Sabbath. And I think that works pretty well for everybody in here who doesn't have a paying job working for the church like me. But for everyone else, uh, yeah, that, that could work. I would just say prioritize it. Say, hey, you know what, Sunday's my day to restore my soul and be with the Lord. So worship here together. This is why we, we ask you to be consistent and to be here. This is a, a, a rhythm in our week where we want to come together and, and worship together. It's part, of, it's part of restoring. It's part of setting our intention. It's part of setting our priorities for our life. Now, let me add this final caveat. If you have a family, you're going to have to figure out how to do this together. And depending on the age of your children, this can be tricky. I have teenage boys in my house. My wife read this meme to me the other day that says, I'm really trying to get myself together, but my kids are living their best life and I'm their ride. Man, as a parent of teenage boys, I feel that in my soul. If you have little ones, it probably feels like there's no rest for the weary in your house. Little kids may not sign up for your Sabbath plan, but there are still ways to make it work. You just have to get creative with food and time, but it's doable. Man, all of this is necessary for our souls, this rest. And, and honestly, it is doable, but you're going to have to want it and pursue it. Let's pray. God, thank you for the principle of Sabbath rest, and I pray that we incorporate into our lives, that we don't just play at it, but that we get serious about putting some boundaries around work and taking that downtime to un- unplug and, and recharge and refresh. Um, God, we know we need this, um, and we get hung up on it, and we get stuck. Uh, Help us to push through that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.